Game Cool Books, Episode 10, Don't Leave Anything Out, Mind. Welcome back. This is Wesley Schantz with uh, Episode 10 of the series on Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass, exploring Chapter 7, John Fa. The opening this time draws a direct contrast to previous sections at Mrs. Coulter's, and it recalls other parts of the book in other ways. It goes, Now that Lyra had a task in mind, she felt much better. Helping Mrs. Coulter had been all very well, but Pantalaimon was right. She wasn't really doing any work there. She was just a pretty pet. On the Egyptian boat, there was real work to do, and Ma Costa made sure she did it. Lyra's task here encompasses also the narrators and brings out the way that the story itself contrasts with the wayward previous chapter. She now has an express goal for rescuing Roger, as well as a tacit one, helping Lord Azriel. The story will go on unfolding that one too by the end of the chapter once she decides to trust the Egyptians fully. The Costas are keeping something from her too. What she didn't notice was that the Costas were alert every second for unusual signs of interest in Lyra from the waterside people. If she hadn't realized it, she was important, and Mrs. Coulter and the Oblation Board were bound to be searching everywhere for her. This points to the difference in awareness between Lyra and the Egyptians more generally, too, and connects with that main theme of her innocence, even as she's learning all these new things. The world of the narrow boat, the very boat she had intended to steal and have a proper voyage on back in chapter 3, is like Jordan in one way, but it's moving towards something, and not in time only, that maturation process, but in place, and it's avoiding detection. With that sharpening of the goal, the adversaries start to come into sharper focus as well. And John Fa will spell this out further in his speech later. Tony had heard gossip in pubs along the way that police were making raids on houses and farms and building yards and factories without any explanation. That there was a rumor that they were searching for a missing girl. And then a little later, and there was another reason for the Costa's interest in Lyra, but she wasn't to learn that for a few days yet. Once they passed through a town where the police were searching all the boats that came along the waterway and holding up the traffic in both directions, the Costas were equal to that, though. There was a secret compartment beneath Ma's bunk, where Lyra lay cramped for two hours while the police banged up and down the length of the boat unsuccessfully. Why didn't their demons find me, though? she asked afterward, and Ma showed her the lining of the secret space, cedar wood which had a soporific effect on demons. It was true that Pantalaimon had spent the whole time happily asleep by Lyra's head. Like many young readers, I imagine, this is where I learned the word soporific from the context. Pan is quiet in this chapter, supportive of Lyra in many ways, but not directly confronting her or guiding her as we've seen before. Uh, we'll pick up on what's up with this in the next chapter as well as they start to read the alethiometer.
but first into the fens, a lovely piece of world-building here. Slowly, with many halts and detours, the Costa's boat drew nearer the fens, that wide and never fully mapped wilderness of huge skies and endless marshland in eastern Anglia. The furthest fringe of it mingled indistinguishably with the creeks and tidal inlets of the shallow sea, and the other side of the sea mingled indistinguishably with Holland, and parts of the fens had been drained and diked by Hollanders, some of whom had settled there, so the language of the fens was thick with Dutch but parts had never been drained or planted or settled at all, and in the wildest central regions, where eels slithered and water-birds flocked, where eerie marsh fires flickered and way-lurkers tempted careless travelers to their doom in the swamps and bogs, the Egyptian people had always found it safe to muster. It's also described further in Laurie Frost, in the elements of his dark materials. She writes, Today, broadly defined, East Anglia designates the region including the counties of Cambridgeshire, Lincolnshire, Suffolk, Norfolk, and Northern Essex. Philip Pullman was born in Norwich in East Anglia and lived with his grandparents near there in the village of Drayton, Norfolk, for a time during his childhood. Largely rural, the region is noteworthy for its coastal areas, rivers, and nature preserves, as well as Norman and medieval cathedrals, churches, and other architectural sites. Gives a little bit of the history and says, The Fens, East Anglia, are a wetland area in Cambridgeshire, Lincolnshire, and Norfolk. In the 17th century, land speculators, in spite of local resistance, began draining its bogs and marsh marshes for farmland. The peaty soil proved quite fertile. However, as it dried and contracted, the land began to sink, and so more drainage was needed. Windmills could not keep up with the cycle of drainage, shrinkage, and flooding. Steam-powered and later electrical pumps were more successful at keeping the water away. It would seem that by the mid-16th century, the histories of Lyra's and Will's world's England's had diverged. Just as the Reformation seems never to have taken hold in Lyra's England, the Fens appear to have remained in their natural state. And so some of what this might connote besides what's in the text is the struggle against nature, also the bodies that are discovered in the bogs, this idea of preservation and death and that eerie combination portrayed to such effect in the dead marshes in Tolkien's Middle Earth. And this is an instructive point of comparison. The travel dealt with uh, so briefly here, though at greater length than the Zeppelin flight, um, is going to be Pullman's M.O. throughout the journeys. He'll give an evocative overview rather than the minute geographical and meteorological descriptions that you get in Tolkien. And even this material in Pullman is woven immediately into the thematic substrate and recast in terms of Lyra's character development. When we get Ma Costa's talk with her about marsh fire. Lyra listened enthralled to tales of the fen dwellers, of the great ghost dog Black Shuck, of the marsh fires arising from bubbles of witch oil, and began to think of herself as Egyptian even before they reached the fens. She had soon 
slipped back into her Oxford voice, and now she was acquiring Egyptian one complete with Fen Dutch words. Marcosta had to remind her of a few things. You ain't Egyptian, Lyra. You might pass for Egyptian with practice, but there's more to us than Egyptian language. There's deeps in us and strong currents. We're water people all through, and you ain't. You're a fire person. What you're most like is marsh fire. That's the place you have in the Egyptian scheme. You've got witch oil in your soul. Deceptive, that's what you are, child. Lyra was hurt. I ain't never deceived anyone. You ask. There was no one to ask, of course, and Ma Costa laughed, but kindly. Can't you see I'm paying you a compliment, you gosling, she said, and Lyra was pacified, though she didn't understand. As Verlin Flieger pointed out in our conversation, Pullman works in dialect and uh, different accents for the Egyptians, something that would appeal to philologically inclined readers. And I just noticed that Pullman, like Tolkien, uses the word smoke leaf instead of tobacco. I wonder where he got it. Readers with interest in other sorts of diversity, too, might take note of the passage, uh, of this passage and others, especially in this chapter, but throughout the book, which helps set the Egyptian identity apart as distinct. Along with Lyra's place in the Egyptian scheme, linked to witch oil, we might recall the mention of the Lapland witches, another distinct group which will further add to the diversity of Lyra's world. Her resistance to being deceptive only proves Ma's point, though it's true she doesn't intend to, she simply doesn't realize it's a compliment. And Ma Costa's here giving Lyra a place she doesn't understand, foreshadowing events much later in the world of the dead. But Lyra does understand that it is a place, and she's content. Altogether, the Egyptians operate in a kind of parallel world within the already parallel universe of the story, as itinerant water people with their language and traditions. Lyra's entering in, and by extension the readers, comes about through their voices and words, and necessarily is only partial. The sense of depth is heightened by mentioning stories like the ghost dog. It might recall the exoticism introduced in smaller ways in the prior chapter through Tony's bow and the pearls on his and his mother's coats. Not literal ones, but the metaphor. These are little windows onto the east. The casual racism of the waterside people towards the Egyptians echoes passages you might find, for example, in The Adventures of Huck Finn by Mark Twain. However they may be stereotyped by the land dwellers, we see the Egyptians are a power in their own right, a counterweight to the college and the church. At last, we tie up at the ancient meeting place at sunset, like that sunset of the day Roger and Billy were taken, but bloody rather than soft-lit. The quality of light and the source are details insistently present in Pullman's narration, illuminating the scene in your imagination, much as the dust driving the thematic development shows up in certain photograms. I don't always point it out, but as you read along, you're bound to begin noticing it. It's like the description of Jordan's possessions throughout the realm as well. We get a passage like this. When the Egyptians called a buy-in roping, a summons or muster of families, so many boats filled the waterways that you could walk for a mile in any direction over their decks, or so it was said. And in some sense, 
By walking on the deck of a single boat, you can go from one place to another. The Egyptian world is a movable territory, a moving world that carries you and that you carry with you in the form of stories and language and mythic deeps that bind it together as much as the ropes. Now, something was brought up earlier. Pullman again here doubles down yet again on the problem of Susan, or just to show that caring for one's appearance is the prerogative of the mature male of the species, too. We get a passage like this. Tony and Kareem oiled their hair, put on their finest leather jackets and blue spotted neckerchiefs, loaded their fingers with silver rings, and went to greet some old friends in neighboring boats and drink a glass or two in the nearest bar. Tony's taming here quickly wraps up what might otherwise have been drawn out into a more developed character arc for him. Pullman talks in places about there being more stories he might want to tell about some of his characters, and Tony Costa might well have been one of them, but for now our focus, like the narrator's, remains resolutely on Lyra. He laughed loudly and ruffled Lyra's hair. Ever since they'd entered the fence, he had been more and more good-tempered as if the savage gloom his face showed outside were only a disguise, and Lyra felt an excitement growing in her breast as she ate quickly and washed the dishes before combing her hair, tucking the alethiometer into the wolfskin coat pocket, and jumping ashore with all the other families, making their way up the slope to the Zal. She had thought Tony was joking. She soon found that he wasn't, or else that she looked less like Egyptian than she'd thought, for many people stared, and children pointed and by the time they reached the great doors of the Zal, they were walking alone between a crowd on either side who had fallen back to stare and give them room. And then Lyra began to feel truly nervous. She kept close to Ma Costa, and Pantaliman became as big as he could and took his panther shape to reassure her. Ma Costa trudged up the steps as if nothing in the world could possibly either stop her or make her go more quickly, and Tony and Kareem walked proudly on either side like princes. Here we see her missing the joke again, and Pan taking his panther shape then makes an interesting, unintentional counter-pun. Tony and Kareem as princes are reminiscent of the silver and pearls again. Nobility up till now disguised, flanking Lyra and Ma setting the pace. No father of the Costa family is ever mentioned, but then John Fa is father enough for all. He is the central figure in this chapter, and in the Egyptian world as a whole. He's a figure of the stature of an Azrael or a Coulter, the like of which in the previous chapter was so conspicuous by its absence. Perhaps this helps make him all the more impressive here. He wore a plain canvas jacket and a checked shirt like many Egyptian men. There was nothing to mark him out but the air of strength and authority he had. Lyra recognized it. Uncle Azriel had it, and so did the Master of Jordan. This man's demon was a crow, very like the Master's raven. As Pullman says in numerous interviews and FAQs, his demon is probably something like a jackdaw, a crow, a raven-like bird, stealing shiny bits of story. So this is another small respect 
in which he might display his affinity, his admiration for certain characters in his story. As I was looking up the name Fa, I thought first it might mean something in Dutch, and it nearly means, or is equivalent to the word Faam, uh, that's F-A-A-M, fame, or renown. Um, you might also associate it with the musical note, Fa, a long, long way to run. But Coram is the musical one, and Fa doesn't look like he'd ever run. So I kept looking, and on the Oxford Dictionary blog page by Simon Horobin, I turned up this. Some, like Lee Scoresby's surname, okay, here you go. Father Coram, a prominent member of the Egyptians, was named after an 18th century philanthropist, Thomas Coram. 1668 to 1751, noted especially for his charitable work for orphans. The founding hospital he established is still active today as the Thomas Coram Foundation for Children. John Faw is the name of a historical Scottish figure who was formally acknowledged as King of the Gypsies during the 1500s. The name Gyptians itself is an archaic form of the modern English Gypsies, it derives from an early form of this word spelled G-I-P-C-Y-A-N, an aphetic, reduced, form of Egyptian, so-called because when this group first appeared in England in the early 16th century, they were wrongly thought to be of Egyptian origin. Huh. And among other interesting tidbits on this page, there's a note about Lyra's name connecting it with the... Uh, term Lyra Davidica says Pullman himself has explained that he took the name from the supposed author of the favorite hymn of his childhood attributed to Lyra Davidica. Pullman later discovered that what he had taken for, to be a name was in fact the Latin for Harp of David, but since he liked the name he decided to use it for his heroine. And this note about Ma Coster he has it written Coster, so maybe that's how it is in Northern Lights. The surname of Ma Coster is more typical of English occupational surnames. Coster is an abbreviated form of costermonger. This was originally a name for an apple seller, from costard, apple, but later applied to any London street tradesperson. Hmm. And I just happened to be reading Merry Wives of Windsor recently, where the name, or the word Coram, spelled like it is in this book, appears in one of the first lines. And I cannot really interpret for you what it's supposed to mean, but here's a note someone gives. Slender mistakenly uses the legal term quorum for another legal term, quorum. Quorum occurs at the beginning of a clause in a commission that appointed justices. This word sometimes became part of a justice's title. I know we use the word quorum to mean that you have enough votes or something like that. So anyway, anyway, let's listen to John Fa. Egyptians, welcome to the roping. We've come to listen and come to decide. You all know why. There are many families here who've lost a child. Some have lost two. Someone is taking them. To be sure, landlopers are losing children, too. We have no quarrel with landlopers over this. Now there's been talk about a child and a reward. Here's the truth to stop all gossip. 
The child's name is Lyra Belacqua, and she's being sought by the Landloper police. There is a reward of 1,000 sovereigns for giving her up to them. She's a Landloper child, and she's in our care, and there she's going to stay. Anyone tempted by those thousand sovereigns had better find a place neither on land nor on water we ain't given her up. Lyra felt a blush from the roots of her hair to the soles of her feet. Pantalimon became a brown moth only to hide. Eyes all around were returning to them, and she could only look up at Ma Costa for reassurance. The goal here is to listen and to decide, and that, as it happens, is what we are doing, too, as readers, though perhaps we're not realizing it. We've come to listen to the story and to decide how to interpret and act upon it. And he says, here's the truth, and I'll use a very similar phrase later, telling Lyra the truth about herself, and then an even more pulmonish phrase in his talk with Lyra later, now I'm going to tell you a story, a true story. Thus far, this truth-teller is a counterpart not just to the alethiometer, a term being glossed by Coram as truth-measure, but also to Macosta, whose silence we noted before, and which we'll see again at the end of this chapter. He occupies and, as it were, establishes this as the appropriate place and time for telling and hearing the truth, as Macosta before implied that it wasn't yet time and like a great leader, he articulates succinctly and powerfully the people's own thoughts better than they could themselves. There's many cool moments in his speech here. There's that remark about the landloper child that makes Lyra blush again more than anything has so far. He's giving her a place and leaving no place for those who would give her up. We get the north called the land of dark later, not like the shadow realms of so many derivative fantasy stories, but in this case, I think it refers simply to the short days there at this time of year, at least on the face of it. And then he has the contention that every power on land, police and clergy alike, know and will help what's going on, stealing the children. And that connects back with what we heard at the cocktail party, that they, like Boreal, think that it's good, whatever is being done to the kids that it's for their own and for everyone's good. When challenged, John Farr responds in kind. He is calm. He says, Raymond, are you saying we should fight our way through every kind of danger to a little group of frightened children and then say to some of them that they can come home and to the rest that they have to stay? No, you're a better man than that. says, you're a better man. Living as I do in a society organized with respect to a rather dim view of human nature, as ambitious and greedy above all, brilliantly organized, don't get me wrong, but that's what the U.S. Constitution seems to be premised on, it's interesting to wonder under what circumstances is it possible to appeal to a person's better nature. The answer here seems to be, at this sort of meeting, presided over by this sort of authority in this traditional place. Sort of the opposite of our political commons. Here there is no anonymity. 
There is an immediate cost to one's reputation. And there's a kind of universal motivation for a communal recognized goal. And so, Fa's abrupt conclusion is met with democratic approval. Well, do I have your approval, my friends? The question caught them by surprise, for there was a moment's hesitation. But then a full-throated roar filled the hall, and hands were clapped in the air, fists shaken, voices raised in excited clamor, the rafters of the zal shook, and from their perches up in the dark a score of sleeping birds woke up in fear and flapped their wings, and little showers of dust drifted down. The roar we might think back to when a few pages later Lyra will speak of the roarer. The dust, though, lower cased, and the birds stirred from their slumber, look highly symbolic if we are in the mindset of a symbol reader. And there's just one more glance at Tolkien here. It would be instructive, too, to confer between this chapter and that massive Council of Elrond in the Fellowship of the Ring to see how differently these two authors approach their stories. The transition into the next part of the chapter falls again to Tony Costa. Come on, said Tony. I'd best take you up to pay your respects to John Fa. You call him Lord Fa. I don't know what you'll be asked, but mind you tell the truth. Pantalaimon was a sparrow now, and sat curiously on Lyra's shoulder, his claws deep in the wolfskin coat, as she followed Tony through the crowd up to the platform. He lifted her up, knowing that everyone still in the hall was staring at her, and conscious of those thousand sovereigns she was suddenly worth, she blushed and hesitated. Pantalaimon darted to her breast and became a wild cat, sitting up in her arms and hissing softly as he looked around. Lyra felt a push and stepped forward to John Fa. He was stern and massive and expressionless, more like a pillar of rock than a man, but he stooped and held out his hand to shake. When she put hers in, it nearly vanished. So get that reminder again, mind you tell the truth. And she's lifted up, like climbing the steps to the Zal before, or maybe like the dais back in chapter one. And Pan changes here from a sparrow to a wildcat to embolden her, like he took the panther shape before suggesting that his role as guardian is uh, stronger here, though I tend to emphasize the curiosity aspect of the sparrow. Maybe they're two sides of the same thing. And close to, we get an emphatically larger-than-life John Fa, described as a pillar of rock, as earth, as stony, but also as gentle, a type of the rock of ages, but also something of the comforter. His watchword here is proper, the very word Lyra had in mind for her journey once she'd stolen the Costa's boat. And they come into the parley room, very like the retiring room, or how I'd imagine the captain's quarters on a ship. But those twelve chairs around the table might also make you think of the chamber of the Last Supper. Farakorum with his skull-like face, frightens Lyra, reminding the reader of the skulls in catacombs, and foreshadowing the skull he'll point out above the hourglass symbol. Like it, he has many meanings, 
as demon's fur helps reinforce this. But more on them in the next chapter. I've tried making a case for the Egyptians as an element tending to lend diversity and depth to the story, and the treatment of servants gives that another wrinkle, another texture to unfold. The roles of servants and of women in the Golden Compass are intriguing, but I've got lots of eels to fry, so I won't say too much more just now. I'll only note that here, this servant, though she's in the background, is allowed in the room, unlike females in the retiring room at Jordan, and she provides drinks, like a lady in a Nordic hall, uh, gives Jennifer, that's gin for the old men, and wine, another wine image here, for Lyra. So just to read that, sorry, I skipped it. A woman whom Lyra hadn't noticed came out of the shadows with a tray of glasses and set it down by John Fa, curtsied, and left. John Fa poured little glasses of Jennifer from a stone crock for himself and Farakorum, and wine for Lyra. So, John Fa said, you run away, Lyra. Yes. And so, in abbreviated form, we get Lyra's story again, and are given to understand that she tells much more of it to John Fa than Farakorum. It seems to come a lot smoother now than when she told the Costas and gathered it like a deck of cards. It's still passionate, though, with a dynamic urge to do something about it flowing through the jumbled facts. Well, first they never knew that I knew some kids what had been took, my friend Roger the kitchen boy from Jordan College, and Billy Costa, and a girl at the Covered Market in Oxford, and another thing... My uncle, right, Lord Asriel, I heard them talking in his, about his journeys to the north, and I don't reckon he's got anything to do with the gobblers, because I spied on the master and the scholars of Jordan, right? I hid in the retiring room where no one's supposed to go except them, and I heard him tell them all about his expedition up north, and the dust he saw, and he brought back the head of Stanislaus Grumman, what the Tartars had made a hole in, and now the gobblers have got him locked up somewhere. The armored bears are guarding him, and I want to rescue him. She looked fierce and stubborn as she sat there, small against the high carved back of the chair. Two old men couldn't help smiling. But whereas Fartacorum's smile was a hesitant, rich, complicated expression that trembled across his face like sunlight chasing shadows on a windy March day, John Fah's smile was slow, warm, plain, and kindly. sounds a lot like a kid tell a story, and it shows us her response that she gets from them, even if we, being closer to Lyra, don't understand at once why that response should be a smile. Now, comparing John Fa and Fartacorum would be inevitable, probably, <laughs> even without a hint as strong as their two smiles to suggest it. Clearly, they're old friends and counterparts, quite different in physical appearance, but both are old. The strength of the one balanced by the extreme weakness and, on the other hand, the extreme intelligence of the other. Both are smart, but their qualities of intellect and experience seem to differ. As they represent kinds of leadership, they also make me think that they stand for kinds of reader, too, since, after all, they listen to Lyra's story and then, a bit later, 
They train their attention on the alephiometer. Now we come to an interesting impasse. What John Foss says is, tell us everything. Which of course is impossible, on many levels. But we understand what he means right away. To compose a whole from parts, or to make it possible for him to do so. Not to leave anything important out, intentionally, or through carelessness, or impatience. Anyhow, in the spirit of his demand, it's perfect. He's a kind of ideal reader. No deceiver he, very unlike Lord Asriel. And Lyra is most afraid of his kindness. Why? Well, because she's afraid she would betray it to disappoint him. That would be devastating. I think it's probably not that different from Pullman's respect for the innocence and experience of the reader, perhaps. And Father Coram, in turn, is a kind of inversion of Mrs. Coulter. He's decrepit in body, but with a musical voice and a beautiful demon. He tends to ask questions, and they seem to be genuine questions. He asks, This dust, did they ever call it anything else, Lyra? And she answers, No, just dust. Um, but she's forgetting that she did hear it called Rusakov particles, and even the dark principle or something like that. She heard those both at the, uh, the party when her head was already spinning, so no wonder she doesn't remember. And then, as we mentioned, she mispronounces the aurora, too. So she's being as honest as she can, but she may not have too much practice at it, and she's still ignorant, or, in short, innocent. After she tells about the vision of the city that she saw, Father Coram finds it very interesting. Now, Lyra, said John Fowle, I'm a-going to tell you something. Father Coram here, he's a wise man. He's a seer. He's been a follower in all what's been going on with dust and the gobblers and Lord Azriel and everything else. And he's been a-following you. Every time the Costas went to Oxford half a dozen other families come to that, they brought back a bit of news. How about you, child? Did you know that? Myra shook her head. She was beginning to be frightened. Pantaliman was growling too deep for anyone to hear, but she could feel it in her fingertips, down inside his fur. So these are two more readers of the story, like ourselves, but both charitable both effective in their own ways. At Pant's growl, I recoil a bit, almost as if it's directed at me. I don't really want the characters in my stories to resent being characters. That's a bit too postmodern for me. And so as the Master says earlier that Lyra's destiny is only possible if she does it of her own free will. But things here stay within the frame, a well-prepared one at that. Oh, yes, said John Farr. All your doings, they all get back to Father Coram here. Lyra couldn't hold it in. We didn't damage it, honest. It was only a bit of mud, and we never got very far. What are you talking about, child? said John Farr. Father Coram laughed. When he did that, his shaking stopped, and his face became bright and young. 
But Lyra wasn't laughing. With trembling lips, she said, And even if we had found the bung, we'd never took it out. It was just a joke. We wouldn't have sunk it, never. Then John Faw began to laugh, too. He slapped a broad hand on the table so hard the glasses rang, and his massive shoulders shook, and he had to wipe away the tears from his eyes. Lyra had never seen such a sight, never heard such a bellow. It was like a mountain laughing. So we get her story at last of one of stealing the boat, and once more she's subjected to a gentle teasing, which she doesn't entirely understand. But finally, that bit of her baggage is out in the open. She feels contented and safe. And we do it with her, uh, just as much bigger reveals are in the offing. Well now, child, I'm going to tell you a story, a true story. I know it's true, because Egyptian woman told me, and they all tell the truth to John Fa and Farakorum. So this is the truth about yourself, Lyra. Your father never perished in no airship accident, because your father is Lord Azrael. Lyra could only sit and wonder. So, it's wonder. Uh, she's dazed. It's a true story. And he claims authority, vouching for the truth of it by his ethical appeal. So we get mythos and ethos, whereas we tend normally to focus on pathos and logos insofar as we think about rhetoric in those terms anymore. Anyway, it's much like what she felt, that same wonder on hearing Azriel's story back in chapter 2, or Mrs. Coulter's stories through chapter 4, and I suppose into 5 a bit. And yet it differs, too, as both characters begin to be shaded in, where before they were sort of iconic and ahistorical. We hear now how Azriel won his fortune exploring the north, and how his beloved, as yet unnamed, was not so well-born, but brilliant. And the trouble that she already had made for herself marrying a rising man, a politician. This is all the stuff of Greek tragedy, of fairy tale, Bible stories, tabloids, soap operas, pulp romance. But it's masterfully told, again, leaving out certain things. Never naming Lyra's mother or the Egyptian woman, so far at least. Then we hear about the crisis, briefly at first, because it'll be filled in a bit later. We hear about the court case and Azriel's poverty, Lyra's orphaning, her mother washing her hands of it all. So much for her. Because again, when telling a story, only so much can be told. Some things brought into relief, others left opaque in various ways. John Fogg goes on explaining from character, telling her her father was high-handed. Ethos again. And Pullman's own sentiments come through here a bit. priory dedicated to obedience, and that gets ratcheted up in the Book of Dust, La Belle Sauvage, to holy obedience would be something Azriel would have a problem with standing as it did for dogmatic authority, very different from that which he and Fa and the Master represent, as Pullman's narrator shows them. And again, in La Belle Sauvage, he modifies and greatly expands on this story. But in general, 
Finally, we got answered here a question we've been asking from the start of the book about where Lyra comes from and how she found herself at Jordan. Like many epics and dramas, it starts with anger, born from love, flip side of love, the master making his promise to care for this child and keep her from her mother. We still have to wonder how Azrael got him to do that. What hold did Azrael have on him, or was it the master's own kindness? Their relationship remains a bit mysterious. And it's that which allows Pullman to tell a bunch more stories about it. And also, as far as the transmission of this story, it's a point which is never accounted for with respect to Pullman's stories as a whole, how he came to be in possession of these stories, but well. Behind the transition of this portion of the story are the Egyptians' connections in all sorts of places, like the waterways which reach everywhere, or like the hidden compartment under the, ma uh, the bunk of Marcosta, or the hidden meeting place in the fens. They gather this valuable information, much in the same way they've gathered Lyra and safeguarded her and put her in a position to hear about it. So she feels important and strange, because all along it was Bernie, pastry cook at Jordan College, uh, sending news back to the Egyptians. We hear that his demon is the same sex as him, and that this is rare, and that's another little bit of diversity, I suppose. And presumably now Lyra better understands the feeling behind what Bernie said then. And he tried to tell her that Roger's bound to turn up and life's got to go on. Though at the time it only set her off more rather than soothing her. Now this sense of seeing something new in a previous episode and suddenly seeing the whole thing in new light is just being modeled for us here with her sudden understanding of the Master's strange behavior. And then the lingering mystery of the poisoning which we'll hear interpreted in various ways, and all the parts of her story that she can't quite remember, will invite us to try out our own reinterpretations and remembering, with the benefit of rereading if we choose, or, on the other hand, speculating, writing fan fictions and commentaries and adaptations if we want. Anyhow, Egyptians remember the man's name was Coulter, casual bombshell, the implications of which Lyra picks up on right away. Mrs. Coulter, said Lyra, quite stupefied. She ain't my mother. She is. And if your father had been free, she wouldn't never have dared to defy him, and you'd still be at Jordan, not knowing a thing. But what the master was it doing, letting you go is a mystery I can't explain. He was charged with your care. All I can guess is that she had some power over him. Lyra suddenly understood the master's curious behavior on the morning she'd left. But he didn't want to, she said, trying to remember it exactly. He... I had to go and see him first thing that morning, and I mustn't tell Mrs. Coulter. It was like he wanted to protect me from her. She stopped and looked at the two men carefully, and then decided to tell them the whole truth about the retiring room. 
her understanding and ours will be considerably amplified by the rest of the conversation as she now contributes further what she has not so far told me. And what she can tell partly because she now better understands her place within the story. Of course, she'll still have to process and change her habits of thought. As she tells this part, she still calls Uncle Azriel. She still seems astonished that she saved his life and that she had to save his life. And so the master does remain something of a mystery after all, as far as his intentions for this. Then on the morning I left, he called me in early to his study, and I had to go secretly so no one would know. And he said, Lyra racked her brains to try and remember exactly what it was the master had said. No good. She shook her head. The only thing I could understand was that he gave me something, and I had to keep it secret from her, from Mrs. Coulter. I suppose it's all right if I tell you. She felt in the pocket of the wolfskin coat and took out the velvet package. She laid it on the table, and she sensed John Faw's massive, simple curiosity and Father Coram's bright, flickering intelligence, both trained on it like searchlights. When she had laid the alethiometer bare, it was Father Coram who spoke first. Two searchlights, so like their two smiles and their two laughs. And it's also the same sort of thing that described Boreal's attention, reminiscent again of the photograms where dust manifests his light. So we shift here into yet another layer of the story, with Coram as the main guide for now. You might think about in what way it reflects the story that's just been told, makes a fit counterpart to it. The subject now not Lyra's past and her parentage, but the alethiometer, a kind of pure potential, like her future. That's a symbol reader, he calls it. And then, the, as we said, truth measure, from alethia, Greek, meaning truth. And she thinks, as she says here, I can make the three short hands point to different pictures, but I can't do anything with the long one. It goes all over, except sometimes, right? Sometimes when I'm sort of concentrating. I can make the long needle go this way or that just by thinking it. So it's interesting that she thinks it's something she's doing to make it to go as compared to Coram's explanation here and the way we see it working later, this is an intriguing confusion on Lyra's part. Describing it in this way, if we take it seriously, suggests that there's a breakdown here between her sense of herself and what's other, and an expansion of herself to include the other, taking the activity of the device to be following her own will rather than the other way around. A mystic fallacy, or perhaps... Just an innocent view of the same phenomenon will get described in the next chapter from the other external direction. In a very interesting passage we'll look at next time. For now, Father Coram explains. All these pictures round the rim, said Father Coram, holding it delicately toward John Fa's blunt, strong gaze. They're symbols, and each one stands for a whole series of things. Take the anchor there. The first meaning of that is hope.
because hope holds you fast like an anchor so you don't give way. The second meaning is steadfastness. The third meaning is snag or prevention. The fourth meaning is the sea, and so on down to ten, twelve, maybe a never-ending series of meanings. And do you know them all? I know some, but to read it fully I'd need the book. I seen the book, and I know where it is, but I ain't got it. We'll come back to that, said Janfa. Go on with how you read it. You got three hands you can control, and you use them to ask a question. By pointing to three symbols, you can ask any question you can imagine, because you've got so many levels of each one. Once you've got your question framed, the other needle swings round and points to more symbols that give you the answer. But how does it know what level you're thinking of when you set the question, said John Fa. Ah, by itself it don't. It only works if the questioner holds the levels in their mind. You got to know all the meanings first, and there must be a thousand or more. Then you got to be able to hold them in your mind without fretting at it or pushing for an answer. And just watch while the needle wanders. When it's gone round its full range, you'll know what the answer is. I know how it works because I seen it done once by a wise man in Uppsala. And that's the only time I ever saw one before. Do you know how rare these are? The master told me there was only six made, Lyra said. Whatever the number, it ain't large. So a never-ending series. Well, then it must be quite a long book. But that's safe for later. As far as these levels of question, to me, this is the essential issue in education. Knowing how to ask the question at the right level. And as a learner... Being able to move between levels of meaning as gracefully as can be done. Is it a matter of knowing all the meanings up front? Or might it be about knowing oneself, the situation, the sense of abiding in that place of playful yet serious immediacy possible in between jest and earnest, between innocence and experience? A place like a story from which Answers seem to arise of themselves. The way that Potter Korn describes it, Keats' negative capability seems to be at work here. And some of Potter Korn's visit to Uppsala is told in La Belle Sauvage. He leaves out here the most exciting part of that trip, as told in the later tale. It's clear here, though, that Korn's wisdom is not academic in the manner of scholars, though he is a wise man. And he has moved in that world too. And so he, as well as John Fa, is a kind of role model for us if we care more about learning than we do about institutions and more about justice than we do about politics. But there's no more time for soapboxing now. As the chapter comes to a close, we hear some guesses in this space of uncertainty and about weighing concerns like these levels of meaning. Now the master's got a hundred things to look after. His first concern in his college and the scholarship there. So if he sees a threat to that, he has to move again it. 
and the church in recent times, Lyra, has been a-getting more commanding. There's councils for this and councils for that. There's talk of reviving the office of Inquisition, God forbid. The master has to tread warily between all these powers. He has to keep Jordan College on the right side of the church or it won't survive. And another concern of the master is you, child. Bernie Johansson was always clear about that. The master of Jordan and the other scholars, they loved you like their own child. They'd do anything to keep you safe. Not just because they'd promised Lord Asriel that they would, but for your own sake. So, if the master gave you up to Mrs. Coulter when he'd promised Lord Asriel he wouldn't, he must have thought you'd be safer with her than in Jordan College, in spite of all appearances. And when he set out to poison Lord Asriel, he must have thought that what Lord Asriel was doing would place all of them in danger, and maybe all of us too, maybe all the world. I see the master as a man having terrible choices to make. Whatever he chooses will do harm. But maybe if he does the right thing, a little less harm will come about than if he chooses wrong. God preserve me from having to make that sort of choice. And when he came to the point where he had to let you go, he gave you the symbol reader and bade you keep it safe. I wonder what he had in mind for you to do with it. As you couldn't read it, I'm foxed as to what he was thinking. There I go. God forbid. God preserve. There's irony there. It's palpable. And in Fa's sympathetic engagement with the master here, and reflecting on having to make choices in a way that one hopes to do less harm. This is another respect in which we can't tell everything. Only just one of the infinite possible stories branching with every choice and bringing in consequences only dimly guessed from the inspiring image or words where we start. Pullman deals with more of this in his essay. The Path Through the Wood, um, among other places. But, uh, again, as readers, we don't know what's going to happen next, and we can hazard our own guesses, thinking like John Fa, maybe it was a kind of recompense, or maybe Lord Asriel could read some wisdom from the instrument and hold back from his purpose, or maybe something else entirely, but at any rate, we do keep listening, we do keep deciding to read on, and, uh, and we feel something at stake in the story, wondering if our questions will be answered. The prospect of consulting the alephiometer that they raise here begins to take us into the next chapter, but capping her struggles throughout this one between telling and being told, Lara is suddenly shy, but had to ask, who was the Egyptian woman who nursed me? Why, it was Billy Costa's mother, of course. She won't have told you, because I ain't let her. But she knows what we're talking of here. So it's all out in the open. Outside the door of the parley room, Costa is waiting. And as if nothing had happened since Lyra was born, the boat mother gathered her into her great arms and kissed her before bearing her off to bed. So everything is out in the open as promised by the narrator. 
And he too has been putting Lyra in danger, like the Master has done, for reasons which it would be hard to fully explain. You might not want him to, for the reader too. And yet the story continually catches us and embraces us. Again, Mark Costa seems to be the silence underneath the story, making it possible for us to hear it. The stillness underneath the events. And love like this, without which the books are purely academic, has better be there for the reader if they're still listening to me at this point. Um, we also hear the phrase, as if, which is a highly significant term for Pullman, echo echoing uh, in formulations in his essays. Uh, he says that we should act as if, as if the reading of stories were really, uh, really worth doing. Um, it's not exactly the same as Pascal's wager, but it's not so different in spirit, perhaps. And it provides an imaginative response, or at least the beginning of one, not so different from Alyosha's kiss to Ivan's account of the Grand Inquisitor and his refrain, everything is permitted in the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Anyhow, it makes a reading of this story which assumes it to be the plot of someone simply harping on an atheist, new atheist agenda, rather unsatisfying reading, to me anyhow. It looks as though Pullman is engaging with the problem of authoritative truth through his story, much more so than propounding a fixed dogma of his own with the story as a vehicle. Anyhow, in the next chapter, we will see Lyra continue adjusting to her sense of her story. And we'll keep adjusting ourselves. And with that, it's past time for recess. If you had a chance to listen to the conversation I recorded with Gabriel Schenk, you'll know I'm all flutter about getting to meet another reader who's as big a Pullman nerd as I am. And as our talk ran a little over, uh, plus with it being Thanksgiving weekend, I didn't add any music or other news onto the end of it. That'll just have to wait till next time. The next conversation I'll release will be the one I recorded with Mark Vernon, who, like Gabriel, is over in England, and he comes at Pullman from his areas of expertise, which are psychology and humanism. Our talk is already up on his website. That's markvernon.com. Uh, if you want to check it out sooner. But I'm going to record two more chapters first, so it'll be at least two weeks, I guess, before taking that next week off and releasing it on the Game Cool podcast, as per my course schedule, which helps this all feel a little more manageable, I hope. Um, then I'll be on a bit of a hiatus probably after that for, uh, for the Christmas holiday. Anyway... As there isn't a whole lot of exploring in the Fen Town just yet, this chapter of the imaginary game adaptation instead will focus on Lyra's activities on board the ship, uh, rather the boat, I guess you should say, uh, in the first half. And in the second, while talking to John Faw and Farda Korm in the parley room, you'll get to play out some of the scenes described there as Lyra imagines them. Her storytelling gets another workout here. So you can build on what you've already told the Costas or change things up slightly. But I think this time there will be more negative consequences if you don't tell the truth 
this time, though. Because let's face it, they probably know all of it already, with the possible exception of the retiring room and the image of the city in the sky. But let's suppose that even that, or some version of it, probably got back to Fartacorum from Bernie, hearing it from Roger, telling it in the Jordan College kitchen. So that if you try to prevaricate on any of these important points, they'll catch you out, and maybe Pan will have a harder time making friends with Fartacorum's demon and others in the future. The new transformations he acquires here, I think, include the panther, the sparrow, and the wildcat. Unless he's already been one of those before, I'm not calling. He's already been a moth, I'm sure. Uh, and perhaps for clearing certain of the mini-games, like opening lock gates and clearing the propeller, you'll earn extra bits of fen lore, or extra helpings of tasty eel, or a chunk of cedar wood to help Pan sleep soundly, or to daze others' demons with. Tony and Kareem might give you one of Billy's silver rings if you tell them the truth about intending to steal their boat, if it hadn't been for Billy and Roger going missing. And maybe this business about the bung will finally get cleared up. Where did Pullman and thus Lyra get that idea? It has the ring of a story to it, no doubt. And maybe you'll catch a glimpse of Black Shuck and the marsh fires and way lurkers, will-o'-the-wisps, flocks of water birds as you traverse the canals, steering the ship now and then as another mini-game. Why not? At this point, you'll be able to use the alethiometer slightly, though still you'll have to keep it secret until deciding to show John Fa and Fartacorum. The more I think about it, the more I hear about AI, the more the intelligence of the alethiometer and of symbol reading begin to sound like a prize AI problem, a place where literary theory and computer programming might come together in a really interesting way. Not for the first time. I wish I, wish I had taken a programming class or two back in uh, high school um, uh, uh, to go along with my semester of piano keyboard. <laughs> Uh, recently coming across the polymath Jaron Lanier, exponent of the artistic and social applications of virtual reality. It occurs to me that some aspects of this game could take place in that medium. Say, if you're playing with a friend, they're playing as Pan, or you're playing as Pan and they're playing as Lyra. Anyway, whoever's playing as Pan could experience what it is like to be different animals seeing the world from his perspective, rather than from the classic Super Mario RPG view I've been envisioning for the game so far. And since it's only imaginary, who cares whether that kind of combination of perspectives within the same game is even possible? At any rate, thinking about it this way brings out one of the more interesting points that Lanier makes on one of his podcast appearances with Ezra Klein on the difference in the experience of reading a book or playing an old-school game, which tend to be solitary, versus playing in a social VR experience together with other people. It makes me think about playing books and reading games in different ways, and what sort of spaces would facilitate that play 
in that reading. As always, I'm indebted again to another major influence, Corey Olson's discussions on Tolkien from within the Lord of the Rings online, his long-form close readings and conversations on books and adaptations in general, and his efforts to start an online university from scratch with his avid team of volunteers and crowdfunding initiatives. This has all been incredible to see and be a part of and to learn from. So Mythgard at Signum University, pioneering the study of games and books and bridging scholarship and fandom in creative ways. These would be great causes to support this holiday season. Just saying. That's where I think I'll go spend the rest of my recess today and see how the rest of the NaNoWriMo story they were working on came out. So I'll let you guys go. I'll see you next time for Chapter 8. Take care.